Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast series where we bring you conversations with authors all over this country, this world. Um, Here in our pandemic times, we are striving to bring you all of the best literary content, and today is no exception. Um, We have two physicians on the podcast today who are going to talk about a new book all about bones, um, which I'm really excited to hear more about. My dad's a doctor. Um, I'm Maddie Gobo, by the way, the events manager here, um, and I love bones, so I'm very excited to to hear this this conversation and to learn more. Um, Before I introduce our guests, I just want to say a few things about Skylight. So uh, if you aren't familiar with us, we are an independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. We're open every day right now from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. for in-store shopping with a mask and socially distancing and all of that. Um, We also take online orders at our website, skylightbooks.com, and we do uh, curbside pickup if you're here in LA, or we will be happy to ship books to you anywhere in the U.S., Um, So we hope you shop with us. And I do want to encourage all of our listeners to get your holiday shopping in early, early, early this year. Um, As you know, everything is haywire right now, everything from top to bottom. Um, And that just also includes the book industry. So um, if there are particular books you're hoping to get your hands on this holiday season, just go ahead and order them early. Just get it out of the way so you don't have to worry about it. And um, so that we don't have to worry about it either. And we can get you what you're looking for with plenty of time to spare. All right, so let me go ahead and introduce today's guests. So today we are hosting Roy A. Meals. Um, He's the author of the new book, Bones Inside and Out, and he's gonna be in conversation with Dr. Vernon Tolo of the Children's Hospital. So here are their bios. Roy A. Meals, MD, is a clinical professor of orthopedic surgery at UCLA. The author of several medical books, he has practiced, researched, and taught hand surgery for 40 years. He has served as president of the American Society for Surgery of the Hand and has also been on the editorial board of the Journal of Hand Surgery for most of his career. He lives in Los Angeles, California. Dr. Vernon Tolo received his undergraduate degree in chemistry and zoology from Concordia College and his medical degree from Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. He completed his surgical and orthopedic training at Johns Hopkins, where he also was chief of pediatric orthopedics for 11 years before coming to Children's Hospital in Los Angeles. All right. So without further ado, Roy and Vern, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm glad you're here. Well, thank you, Maddie. Glad to be here. Um, So, Roy, do you want to start us off with a short reading from the book? 
Right. I think to sort of set the stage for the discussion, I'd like to read uh, three different excerpts. The first from the introduction. Consider the shortcomings of everyday building materials. Mud mushes, when it dries out, it crumbles. Limestone, granite, concrete, brick, and china don't crumble, but they are brittle and their weight and bulk limit their usefulness for building, especially for things that are supposed to move. Metal makes for lighter construction, and if you bend metal a bit, it springs back, which is usually fine. But bend metal some more and it stays bent, which can be bad. Plastics are environmentally unfriendly. Wood is good because it's a bit flexible, easy to join, relatively lightweight, and biodegradable. But it can rot or burn. Other building materials used by some living organisms also have their shortcomings. Shells are heavy, which makes it difficult for snails and clams to move quickly. Lobsters are fast and beetles can even fly, but they're thin, lightweight, crunchy. Exterior support systems need to be vacated and replaced periodically in order for the owner to grow. All this leads to bone. Not only is bone manufactured on site, it is also lightweight, durable, and responsive to changing conditions. A bridge made of steel cannot double its length or its carrying capacity, but bone both grows and responds to stresses. Furthermore, bone mends itself. A shattered brick or a broken spoon, be it made of metal, plastic, or wood, cannot do that. Not only is bone the world's best structural support, it's also the world's largest import-export bank, a repository of vital elements, especially calcium, on which our lives depend. Despite all its marvels, hardly anybody has ever seen or wants to see living bone, especially their own. So bone, despite its superlative features, lives in seclusion and does not get the respect it deserves. Although bone is ubiquitous and versatile, it is rarely seen in its living state, and hence it is a bit mysterious. Then, after this marvelous mystery material has finished serving and protecting its original owner, it reveals itself in myriad places and for myriad purposes, sometimes hundreds of millions of years later. Bone has much to teach us about Earth's history and the course of animal life on the planet. Additionally, from the dawn of civilization, humankind has repurposed bone to serve and protect, even to amuse and inspire. Bone's durability and ubiquity make its revealed state as interesting as its concealed state. By the end of the book, you'll be convinced that it is the world's best building material. And then the book is divided into two parts. Part one is bone concealed. The second part is bone revealed. Still reading from part one, uh, chapter four, uh, ways bone can fail. Remember that the skeleton is the heart's calcium bank. Anytime the heart gets a bit crampy, bone has to come up with a donation. In women, the contributions can become consequential after menopause when estrogen levels fall, which weakens the bones and puts the hip and spine at particular are at particular risk for fractures. For astronauts, the donations are huge, even though all the space explorers to date have either been premenopausal or not subject to menopause. Whiling away months in the International Space Station, astronauts float around and cannot give their bones the opportunity to resist gravity. Without the stimulation from resisting mechanical forces, bone goes on vacation. Hence, orbiters lose calcium at 10 times the rate seen in postmenopausal women. On Earth or in orbit, this loss of calcium constitutes osteoporosis, which means porous bone. The depleted bone is fragile and prone to fracture. On Earth, frequent walking helps maintain bone density 
or at least retard its demise. In orbit, the astronauts work out regularly with stretchy resistance bands to uh, simulate gravity. And then part two from Bones Revealed, uh, chapter 13 is titled The Business of Bones. What do 30 million American bison, the completion of the transcontinental railroad and the discovery of superphosphate fertilizer have in common? A lot, as it turns out. In 1868, they became critical elements in the formation of an industry, one that thrived for 20 years. It helped finance the settlement of the Great Plains, ensured solvency of numerous new railroad lines servicing the settlers, and provided vital fertilizer for crops across the entire continent. This unlikely confluence starts with phosphorus. Without knowing why, early humans discovered that their crops thrived when they planted seeds into soil containing ground up bone. In 1840, the answer became clear. Phosphate, the P and the NPK that is listed on every bag of fertilizer at the garden center is crucial for robust flowering, fruiting and root growth. Bone is an excellent source of phosphate. It became even better when an enterprising chemist uh, mixed bone meal with sulfuric acid. This changed the phosphorus into a form superphosphate that plants could readily access. They loved it. Farmers couldn't get enough of it. During the same years, pioneers were rambling across the Great Plains with railroads rumbling not far behind them. The Native Americans and the roaming buffalo both proved vexatious to the Western migration and it became government policy to exterminate the bison as a means of subduing the Indians. Furthermore, the bison herds were collision hazards for the locomotives, which could not stop quickly. It became common practice for hired marksmen to shoot the bison for moving trains. Their hides might be harvested and the remains rotted in the sun. Over roughly 30 years, tens of millions of bisons were reduced to a few thousand. Bison bones covered the prairie. Wherever a railroad line passed by, it became feasible, actually lucrative, to pick these bones up load them on a train headed back to St. Louis, Detroit, or Chicago, and sell them to fertilizer plants. The homesteaders benefited, particularly in their first year on the prairie, you know, when they did not have crops to trade for needed farm equipment and food staples. The railroads benefited because the trains brought consumer goods west and would otherwise return empty were it not for the bones. And industry blossomed. A homesteading family could harvest a ton a day. Brokers sprung up in every town along the railroad line. They bought bones from the pickers, stacked them in huge piles, and sent them on their way east with the next passing train. As new railroad lines extended west, new opportunities for picking up and delivering bones within practical distances also expanded. What started as an east-west band across Kansas and Nebraska eventually extended south into Texas and north into the far recesses of Alberta and Saskatchewan. During its existence, bone picking was roughly a $40 million industry at the time, and that would be about a billion dollar industry in current dollars. This involved 2 million tons of bones, enough to fill two rows of boxcars crossing the continent from San Francisco to New York. By the early 1890s, however, railroads had expanded into all the areas previously occupied by the bison. The prairie had been picked clean and the industry collapsed. Roy, I think that gives us a good sense of, uh, of the wide variety of topics that you've covered in your book. We've known each other for years, but uh, what motivated you to write this book about bones? I 
Early in my orthopedic surgery career, when you were a resident with me at Hopkins, uh, I uh, first developed a deep respect for bones. It's an amazing constitution and the way it grows and heals and watch the way that our patients uh, heal their fractures, for instance. And uh, it's undoubtedly the world's best uh, uh, building material. Uh, in life, it's uh, easily palpable, but rarely seen and uh, grossly underappreciated. Uh, so I wanted to extol the many virtues of living bone, uh, which I do in the bones first section, bone concealed. And then when the original owner passes on and bone has a second life, I highlight that in the second section, bone revealed. And here I describe how bone influences paleontology, anthropology, religion, art, uh, popular culture. In short, the inspiration came easily from understanding how bone supports vertebrate life and then later records Earth's history and uh, human culture. It's undoubtedly the world's best building material. I know you've been giving lectures on bones for some time uh, now, but uh, how long has the actual book been in the making? Did it uh, just start in the last year or two? Yeah. Or this for a while? Uh, I uh, surprised myself. I was looking through uh, some old computer files the other day and found an outline uh, in the computer from 2012. So I'd begun to organize my thoughts uh, at that point. And then actually I completed the outline and uh, drafted a proposal and started uh, conservatively uh, researching the material four years ago and then uh, acquired an agent a little over two years ago and then signed on with the publisher W.W. Uh, w. Norton about a year and a half ago. Um, what, what was the hardest part about writing this? Is it you've got a lot of references in the book and uh, it <laughs> looks like you've gone through the paleontology literature which I know I'm not very cognizant with. Well, uh, the research was all fun, but then I had almost 400 uh, references, uh, particularly in paleontology and archaeology and topics that I wasn't immediately familiar with. And then the uh, publisher's style for these references was one like I had never seen uh, before and uh, was very awkward and tedious to uh, format uh, those references uh, into uh, the uh, publisher style. I suppose if I'd had a, a secretary or a minion um, like famous authors do, then I would have had them uh, do it. Uh, so the references were no fun. And then also it was tedious uh, obtaining the permissions. I have about 150 images in the book. And uh, so uh, obtaining uh, permissions from the copyright holders uh, around the world um, uh, required some hammering uh, by email. I think it's really nicely done. You have a lot of references that people can uh, allude to, but it doesn't detract from the flow of the book. As in some books, I'm always looking at the bottom of the page to see the references and where they're coming from. But uh, yours uh, moved along really nicely. And uh, so I think you've handled that part really well. Well, thank you. I basically just wanted to tell a story. And if people wanted to see the background material, they can go to the back and find it. So, when the first uh, section, uh, you write about living bone. Uh, I like your analogy that you have to the uh, bankers and the use of a bank and that the calcium is the money, the uh, directors are the vitamin D, the regulators are the hormones and their own federal reserve bank is our parathyroid glands. And then you even go on to use the analogy a little further with the robbers being those that take bone away. So I think that's a good way to explain this. But, uh, uh, can you tell the listeners what bone is made of and what makes it so special? 
Well, you know, I think if I stopped somebody on the street and said, what's your image of bone? Uh, I think oftentimes it would pop into one's head of seeing a cow's skull uh, desiccated and dry uh, on the uh, on the desert. And that certainly we orthopedists know that it is far more than that. It, it is uh, uh, living tissue. Uh, interestingly, the cells are the uh, least Im uh, Im impressive part of the bone because it's the material that the cells make and excrete uh, outside the cells that really makes bone interesting. And they do that two ways. They, uh, first of all, excrete uh, collagen uh, molecules, and these are amino acid chains. And when these chains link together, uh, they make a, a meshwork. And that, in fact, the way that these uh, chains link together, both mechanically and chemically, is that they end up being stronger than a uh, comparably sized uh, strand of uh, steel wire. So they're incredibly uh, strong. They're a little bit stretchy. And then on this meshwork of uh, collagen fibers uh, is deposited a um, calcium crystal. And so that the, the um, uh, collagen resists uh, stretch forces and the uh, calcium crystals resist uh, compressive or, you know, pressive uh, forces. And so in combination, they make a, for a very strong and durable uh, structure. A good analogy would be a, a, a stucco wall where there's a, a wood or wire um, lath on which uh, plaster is applied and so that it's both uh, very uh, durable and strong, uh, but also just a little bit, uh, a little bit flexible. So that's the impressive uh, part of bone that, that makes it such a wonderful building material during life and that the uh, calcium structure then makes it awesomely durable after life and that if the calcium is then fossilized, well then that may mean that we can find the fossilized bones hundreds of millions of years later. I've been taking care of kids' bones for so many years. I'm always amazed still at the reparative ability of bones in kids as they're growing. Different than what you see in adults. I mean, we can see Sometimes kids fractures, a child who might be seven, eight years old, who has a wrist fracture in which the bones are side by side, not even end to end. And a year later, you would never even tell that there was a fracture. The, the bones remodeled so nicely in a growing child that uh, to get them lined up in the general right direction, it's often that the healing is perfect and you can't even tell it was a fracture a year or two later. So I agree, the bone's an amazing uh, organ that we have in our body. We, uh, we uh, hand surgeons and spine surgeons and total joint surgeons, uh, we're rather envious of you uh, pediatric orthopedic surgeons because uh, uh, these kids are so incredibly resilient and have such fantastic uh, regenerative powers that, uh, like you say, is that uh, um, a uh, child can come in with a fracture and uh, be markedly deformed and the parents worried about it and they see the x-ray and uh, are concerned that the doctor really doesn't know what they're doing. And a year later, you take x-rays of both uh, uh, limbs and they're perfectly identical. The bone has entirely remodeled itself. Truly amazing. Now, we as orthopedists, uh, I guess most of the patients and certainly the lawyers think that we ought to know how many bones there are in the body. <laughs> uh, but I don't know, the number seems to change from time to time, something over 200 anyway. Now that you're written the book, a definitive book on bones uh, inside and out. How many bones are there in the body? 
that's a very uh, uh, nuanced answer. And I think it, you have to uh, apply the, a journalist's uh, questions of, uh, you know, who, why, uh, you know, who, where, when, why uh, to um, determine altogether. You know, the Wikipedia answer is uh, 206 bones, but that uh, I would guess that most of us have a number other than 206, and just for several reasons. First of all, most of us have 12 sets of ribs, but occasionally people will have 14 sets of ribs. Uh, infants are born with far more bones in their skull than we as adults have, and they have it this way so that their skull is flexible and can uh, pass through the uh, through the birth canal. And then uh, during uh, growth, is a lot of the bones in the skull fused together to make uh, far fewer bones. And then um, we have what the radiologists see and call accessory bones. And the largest accessory bone uh, would be our kneecaps. And th they are counted in that uh, total of 206. Uh, but the uh, other accessory bones, there's one beside, uh, behind your knee in most people uh, that is about the size of a blueberry. Uh, and uh, it has a name, uh, but for instance, it is not counted in the uh, 206. And that bone is probably 10 times as large as the uh, three bones in your middle ear, and they are counted. So it depends on who's counting, at what age they're counting, um, what interest they have in uh, knowing um, the orthopedic surgeons. Uh, we have to know uh, all those uh, small accessory bones and be able to determine whether it's actually a naturally occurring accessory bone or whether that's an old uh, fracture. But I suppose if you just wanted to be quick about it, you, know, you could say uh, 206, but that um, just appreciate that you know, biology uh, has a lot of variation in it and that uh, I'm guessing that uh, my uh, total bone count is not 206. Well, as with other things in the year 2020, it probably has an asterisk with it. So you can say 206 with an asterisk. Yeah. That's good. So you've, you've, you've selected uh, six giants of orthopedic surgery that you've uh, put into your book uh, to uh, make really good examples of the different aspects of orthopedic surgeons throughout the world. One was from Russia, one from Britain, one from Texas, one from Japan. And two were from here in Los Angeles, one associated with uh, USC as I am, and one associated with UCLA as you are. Do you think as an author, someone living in Chicago would have picked the same seminal figures? Do you think they uh, really stand out for everybody or just us in Southern California? Well, yeah, you might suspect that I was biased toward uh, showcasing the local pioneers, but that uh, I relied on a number of books uh, covering the history of orthopedic surgery to uh, pick the most notable uh, contributors, and uh, these six names uh, appeared uh, repeatedly. Now, having said that, it was easier to research the two Angelinos because uh, I could access the personal recollections, uh, including yours, uh, regarding Jacqueline Perry in assembling their um, uh, bio sketches. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, uh, Jacqueline Perry, because she was affiliated with uh, USC and worked uh, most of her career at uh, Rancho Los Amigos. Yeah, Dr. Perry was a uh, unique individual. She uh, was one of the first 10 women to be board certified by the American Board of Orthopedic Surgeons at a time when there were very, very, very few women. There still are only maybe 10 to 12% of orthopedic surgeons who are women. 
these days, but she was a real pioneer in many ways. Uh, she initially was a physical therapist, and then uh, when she became an orthopedic surgeon, settled into the Rancho Los Amigos Rehabilitation Center uh, just outside of Los Angeles in Downey, California, where she remained for nearly 60 years and continued to work up to just a few weeks before her death at the age of 94. She was a pioneer in developing the halo brace, which uh, is a device that's used for stabilization of uh, neck injuries to uh, guard against any uh, neurologic problems. But her main contribution, I think, was in the area of gait analysis. And when we talk about gait analysis, we're talking about the analysis of how people walk. And she pioneered the uh, concept of using uh, computers to help uh, to uh, determine a three-dimensional picture of a child or an adult walking back and forth. She had a huge interest in polio, which was very popular, or very common, I shouldn't say popular, but common at that time. And this was one of the main uh, neurologic uh, diseases that, uh, that she initially was involved with. Uh, but this uh, pioneer work that she did and wrote a text on this gait analysis about 30 years ago is still a standard text. And now this has developed into these computerized three-dimensional labs uh, throughout many different areas. We're fortunate here at Children's Hospital Los Angeles is that we have the only currently accredited gait analysis laboratory in California. And all the technology, all the uh, specifics of how to analyze the data was all based on the work of Dr. Perry. So she was certainly a giant. The uh, polio was, was very uh, active when uh, she was beginning this uh, work, but it, uh, also gait analysis would relate to uh, children with cerebral palsy or adults uh, with uh, stroke. Uh, but that, uh, Dr. Perry was a, a master in this, I think partly because of her background in physical therapy before she went to medical school and became an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, one, sto one story that a physical therapist told me that uh, was that she was working with Dr. Perry at Rancho Los Amigos, and uh, during her lunch break, she went out on the lawn uh, to practice her uh, golf swing. Uh, Dr. Perry uh, walked by, and not being a golfer herself, but watched the physical therapist uh, uh, swing her golf club, and uh, she uh, gave a couple of uh, tips uh, to the uh, physical therapist said, you know, if you do this to your swing, if you stand this way, uh, then then uh, your uh, swing will be improved. <laughs> and, and in fact, it was. <laughs> Dr. Perry had never played a, a round of golf in her life, but that she understand the, understood the movement of the human body and the balance and the uh, coordination to be able to analyze somebody's golf swing as well as being a world expert in uh, gait analysis. Yeah, she was unique, and I wish I would have known about that story when she was living. I could have helped her, or gotten her help to help my golf game. <laughs> Maybe that's the last chapter in the book. You better look again. <laughs> well, you you worked also with Dr. Urist over at UCLA, who was uh, highlighted in your book, and he's uh, certainly a giant among the uh, uh, orthopedic surgeons that uh, have done things in research that have turned out to become very applicable in clinical practice at the present time. Right. The uh, other four giants, the ones that you mentioned from Russia and Japan and uh, Britain and uh, Texas, is that they all uh, were involved in uh, surgical instruments or, or surgical instrumentation. 
and I think orthopedic surgeons are, you know, in general tool users and that uh, we may have home workshops, we may work on cars. And so it's almost intuitive for us to try to make things better by uh, improving uh, surgical instrumentation. But Marshall Urist uh, gained a position on the list of uh, the six uh, pioneers because of his work in a biochemistry laboratory. In early in his career, he knew that there was something going on with the chemistry of bone in that uh, a fracture uh, would not only heal, but that sometimes bone would form in surrounding tissues, for instance, in the surrounding muscle, so that he knew that there had to be some chemical messenger that not only stimulated new bone uh, to develop at a fracture site, but that also uh, what was this chemical messenger uh, in the uh, muscle. So he set out to uh, identify that. And in his laboratory, he would send the uh, lab technicians to the uh, slaughterhouse and come back with a, a trunk load of uh, beef bones. Uh, they would uh, clean them and then uh, grind them up and uh, remove the uh, collagen uh, from them and then uh, purify uh, the rest of it. And they would start with about 200 pounds of beef bone and then at the end of the purification process would have a, a small a fleck of white powder in the bottom of a test tube. And then when they would dissolve this uh, white powder and inject it into muscle or into brain of an experimental animal or uh, bladder or any other tissue, it is that uh, lo and behold, a bone would form in this uh, position. So he called this bone morphogenetic protein. In other words, a protein that would uh, make bone in in uh, strange places. One of the interesting stories that I got from his son, and both Vern and I uh, know his son, who's a, a thoracic surgeon and uh, spent time with us at uh, Hopkins. But I called uh, uh, Marshall Urist's uh, son uh, when I was uh, researching uh, Marshall Urist's uh, uh, biosketch and said, you must have an interesting story to tell me about your father. And he said, well, yes, this is probably the best one is that uh, the uh, lab tech was preparing a, a batch of the bone morphogenetic uh, protein and it was Friday afternoon and he wanted to leave for a camping trip. And so uh, rather than finish the uh, process, he uh, uh, placed the, uh, uh, flat, the containers in the refrigerator and left uh, for the weekend. Now, normally this stage in the purification process was done at room temperature. And so when he came back on Monday morning, he took the container out of the refrigerator and continued the uh, processing. And lo and behold, is that uh, this batch uh, produced much more bone morphogenetic protein than the ones that had been produced entirely at uh, room temperature. So that was just a, a serendipitous uh, event that uh, uh, accelerated the, their ability to purify and identify uh, this uh, group of uh, uh, proteins. And presently it's used uh, uh, frequently uh, to accelerate the healing of fractures that are otherwise proving difficult to heal. And also it's used in uh, spinal fusions to accelerate uh, spinal fusion. Vern, do you use uh, uh, bone morphogenetic protein in uh, children? Is there a call for it there? Uh, almost never for children, but it's uh, very widely used for adults with uh, spinal surgery in order to facilitate the uh, healing so that they, uh, they get a strong fusion but not very often in, in kids. Well, yeah, because your, your, your patients are so 
robust their bones to heal or just uh, blinking at their blinking at them. Yeah, we're, we're envious of you, Vern. <laughs> One of the other giants that you mentioned is Professor Elizarov, who's not from Southern California, but from Siberia. And he did uh, develop instrumentation, as you said, but he also added some other science to it as far as lengthening of bones, which is kind of a unique thing that's done in growing bones, not much less often in uh, people who are, who are done growing. Uh, but he just figured out that if you uh, put this device on and then lengthen only one millimeter per day, so very, very small amount, that it, that was enough time for the bone and the body to stimulate some uh, bone formation that as you then lengthen the leg, that the, the healing of the bone kept up with the lengthening to form a bone the same size as that which you had above and below where you're trying to lengthen. That was a big uh, uh, contribution as well. And uh, Dr. Elizarov, uh, I think, uh, does uh, have credit, should have credit for uh, uh, figuring this out and how best to lengthen bone, which we still do today in uh, circumstances where growth is abnormal or bad injuries have occurred or someone is born with a congenitally short bone. Part of the story I like about uh, Elizarov is that uh, he was basically uh, sent to Siberia to some uh, general hospital and there were lots of, uh, this was right after World War II, there were lots of uh, war injuries out there, but that uh, supplies uh, were very spare and that, that he had all these complex uh, non-healing fractures to uh, deal with. And so he devised this external uh, frame, basically it was putting pins through the bone that protruded out through the skin and then attaching these uh, pins uh, to a frame. And then uh, the frame had a, a threaded uh, rod on it. And as Dr. Tobo mentioned, is that then uh, this frame could be lengthened about a millimeter a day. But that he was short of supplies and uh, uh, had no pins. And so enterprising soul that he was, uh, he used uh, bicycle spokes. And these served uh, uh, nicely. And that he sort of uh, thought of his whole device as the, the bone being the hub on the wheel and then the spokes being the pins that then supported the uh, hub to this uh, outer frame, which could be, um, could be lengthened. Uh, he, uh, not coming from Moscow, was uh, uh, discounted and disdained uh, for uh, many years. And uh, ultimately, uh, he uh, obtained some recognition in the West because um, you may remember that Valerie Brummel was the Russian who won the uh, high jump. And I think he was probably the first person to high jump over seven feet. But that after he won his Olympic gold medal a year or two later, he had a bad uh, motorcycle accident and had a non-healing uh, leg uh, fracture. The uh, surgeons in uh, Russia threw their hands up after multiple attempts to heal it. And so that uh, uh, he went off to, um, Siberia to have Elizarov take care of it. And lo and behold, Elizarov got it healed. And uh, much to the surprise uh, of uh, uh, the Russian, uh, the, the, the uh, surgeons in, in Moscow, and that uh, uh, he did go back to high jumping, but <laughs> never jumped more than six feet, eight inches after that, if you can believe it. <laughs> if, I'd like to jump six feet uh, under any circumstances, but that um, it, it, basically Elizarov made uh, lemonade out of lemons and every orthopedic surgeon in the world knows his name uh, today, not only for healing fractures, but as Vern mentioned, also uh, lengthening bones in uh, markedly short people. You know, a lot of the listeners probably have some interest in osteoporosis, Roy. You uh, 
Did you touch on this in your book as well? Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, the uh, you know we, I mentioned in the reading that, that osteoporosis is um, just porous bone, and uh, I describe in detail both the chemical and mechanical nature of bone, and, and also to help people understand it, I include uh, both uh, microscopic and radiographic images of, of normal bone and uh, osteoporotic bone. But that basically, uh, if you think about the interior bone being sort of uh, sponge-like and uh, web-like, is that uh, osteoporosis uh, makes it look like it moths have been eaten, have been in there and eaten uh, much of the uh, little bone bridges uh, away. And then, uh, as I mentioned, is that the heart uses the skeleton as its calcium reserve, and uh, that certain hormones control the calcium balance in the blood. And, Basically, the calcium balance in the blood doesn't uh, fluctuate by more than one or two percent. And so if the calcium level begins to drop, then hormones uh, from the uh, parathyroid gland in the neck uh, will send a message saying, you know, help, help. Uh, the heart is going to get a little crampy here if we don't uh, raise the calcium. And so that the, the um, bone has to come up with a um, supply of calcium to uh, keep the heart working uh, properly. Uh, so at any rate, um, I, uh, I, I think uh, with the uh, basic understanding of, of bone and its uh, structure of uh, calcium crystals on a uh, collagen uh, meshwork and then understanding the uh, uh, microscopic and radiographic appearance of it, uh, that then uh, people should have a, a good grasp of, of what osteoporosis is. And then I describe some of the commonly prescribed uh, medications that uh, affect this uh, balance. And I certainly have no intention to be one's uh, a reader's um, physician, but with the foundation that's in the book, uh, then readers uh, should be able to ask informed questions to their uh, personal f physicians and better understand the answers. In the second part of your book, Ryan, uh, Bone Revealed, you uh, talk about the bones role in recording natural history and human culture. Uh, and you already talked a little bit about the bison and the phosphate uh, industry that uh, resulted from that. What kind of stories uh, might the readers expect from this? Um, so a lot on paleontology and uh, old bones and what they have told us in the past. Can you maybe uh, bring out a couple of examples of what we might be uh, able to read? Well, uh, the first chapter in this is about what happens to bone naturally after the original uh, owner uh, passes on and includes uh, how the bones uh, may uh, turn to fossils and then possibly show up again hundreds of millions of years later. And so this is what uh, paleontology uh, is all about. Uh, in the next chapter, I discuss uh, various uh, funerary practices of human cultures uh, through the ages and the types of information that these preserved bones convey to anthropologists, uh, even tens of thousands of years later. And then the, the chapter on bones and business uh, includes uh, six industries that have relied or rely heavily on bone. And these begin with button making in the 14th century. But <laughs> believe it or not, buttons were actually invented in about the 14th century. Uh, and uh, many of the early buttons uh, for everyday use at least were um, uh, turned uh, on a lathe uh, out of uh, bone. And then uh, these bone industries extend to the present time. For instance, uh, bone china is about 50% bone even today. 
Uh, next chapter on domestic bones uh, highlights the myriad ways that humans have repurposed bone to make their lives easier. This would include uh, from uh, fish hooks to uh, spear points and even sewing needles to weaving looms. I have a chapter called Beguiling Bones. And here I elaborate uh, how uh, craftspeople and artists have incorporated bone into such things as musical instruments, uh, personal adornments, uh, scrimshaw, and, uh, and games. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, the original dice that were originally uh, the nearly uh, cubicle-shaped bones from uh, goat ankles. Uh, there are some, were some incredible personalities in the early days of uh, paleontology and uh, archaeology and uh, anthropology. Uh, there was uh, an intense hatred among uh, hate, intense hatred between two uh, uh, very active uh, paleontologists in the late nineteenth uh, century, and uh, this uh, generated what is well known in paleontology circles as the Bone Wars. Uh, there was also a, a case of fraud um, that went undetected for almost uh, 50 years, and then uh, several cases of uh, eccentricity beyond uh, imagination. Uh, for instance, uh, one um, early anthropologist would only uh, go to the field and do his field work if, if he was uh, dressed in his um, academic uh, garb, and that then when he went to town and uh, gave a presentation, he would bring his pet bear uh, to the uh, meeting uh, with him. Uh, so there are lots of personalities that uh, really enrich and color the, uh, the history of uh, bone. <laughs> Certainly before diving into these topics, I had no idea that uh, bone could produce such riveting tales. I really enjoyed the examples that you brought up and uh, almost like you made them up, but I know you better than that. Uh, you referenced it very well, so uh, the reader can uh, uh, can believe that what you did was right. So uh, what's next for you? Gonna write some more? Oh yeah, no, uh, authors uh, authors need to write. And uh, I proposed a, a middle grade um, children's version of Bones uh, to whet their interest in uh, STEM topics, science, technology, engineering, and uh, mathematics. And in some ways I'm anticipating it's even gonna be better than uh, the current uh, book because uh, I think children in particular have a hard time grasping um, long spans of, of time. And so I thought about this for a while and I've, uh, in the book proposal, I have uh, described a time with each year relating to a single Cheerio. And so for instance, uh, orthopedic surgery developed about 140 years ago. And so that's equivalent to a juice class uh, filled with Cheerios. And that Lucy, uh, our ancient, uh, uh, ancestor lived 3.2 million years ago, and, and so 3.2 million years ago is the equivalent of uh, six bathtubs filled with Cheerios. And so I'm going to make the, the book uh, uh, fun for them and really uh, get them excited about uh, STEM topics. Well, knowing what you do now, would you do it again? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I've learned so much and had uh, such a great time organizing this material and trying to make it interesting to a, a general readership regardless of whether uh, their special interest might be in natural sciences or art history or archaeology or popular culture, is it um, uh, bone uh, touches it all and that uh, it is undoubtedly the world's best uh, building material. Uh, it always has been, it always will be, and it's been a, a thrill to have the opportunity to uh, showcase it. Yeah, you've done a great job. I, I thoroughly enjoyed reading it and uh, look forward to uh, 
your future work in the in the area of bones. Well, thank you, Vern. I appreciate the interview today and appreciate your lifelong uh, uh, friendship and support uh, through uh, all aspects of my career. All right, what a fantastic conversation. Thank you both so much for taking the time today. Um, I learned so much. I hope our listeners did too. Um, Roy, thank you again for um, all of the great tidbits and trivia. I think there's so much in this book that um, is perfect for the month of October. Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> and I hope our listeners check it, check it out. So again, the book is Bones Inside and Out. The author is Roy Meals, and he was in conversation today with Dr. Vernon Tolo. Roy and Vern, thank you again. Um, I hope you have a great day. And uh, just wanted to say we had a great, we had a blast having you on here. Okay, thank you, Maddie. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.